Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, listeners. This is Annie here for this week's edition of Solidarity Breakfast. I'm all on my lonesome. I'll have to cry. It must be because winter is is, uh, afoot and uh, everybody's decided that it's much nicer to be under the doona. But never mind. I'm here. You're here. Everything's fine. Uh, It's uh, a feast. We've got a veritable feast. I went off to the Marxist conference during the uh, Easter break. No eggs, no God, no nothing for me. It was Marxist conference. In fact, later on, I went to uh, a family thing and uh, they said, what, some people still think there's going to be a revolution? And I said, why not? (laughs) They've obviously been having their heads in the sand. They don't realise what's going on out there in the real world. Anyway, I've got a, a collected a variety of stuff for you. And one of the things was this delightful conversation that was a speech given by Jess Linehan about time. And uh, I thought uh, I would share that with you because uh, there's so many elements of time that uh, uh, and stories that relate to how people relate to time that's uh, worth going through, like uh, treasures in a, in a box. Uh, Later on, we're going to be talking to Spike from the Homeless Persons Union of Victoria, who've been uh, causing trouble down at Bendigo Street in Richmond. All those empty houses and all those people that need houses, they need to be met. It's a, you know, it's a, a marriage made in heaven, but no, apparently... You've got to be more orderly. There's a queue. Anyway, we're going to get Spike in and he's going to have a chat to us about it. And uh, this is a major event, a political uh, movement in Australia, Homeless Persons Union, and uh, more strength to their arm. Coming up after that, we're going to uh, listen to a chat that uh, Jacob Gretsch, a peace activist, gave at the Marxist conference about uh, Pine Gap. This is the 50th anniversary of the establishment of Pine Gap and a convergence is being called for between the 26th of September to the 20th of October, more details later, uh, to uh, show displeasure at uh, Pine Gap. But he explains what Pine Gap is and uh, what it does and why it's a blot on the landscape. Okay, uh, before we go ahead... Just a message for your ears only. A new illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 
Gracia has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, or pick up your copy at the station. Well, without any further ado, let's move on to our chat about time. This is uh, Jess Lenahan, and this is the first part of her little chat. Well, in the late 1800s, an Irish playwright named John Singe travelled from Ireland to the Aran Islands off the coast to recover from illness. He wrote in his travel journal, While I am walking, someone often comes to me to ask the time of day. Few of the people, however, are sufficiently used to modern time to understand in more than a vague way the convention of the hours. When I tell them what o'clock it is by my watch, they are not satisfied and suspiciously ask me how long is left them before the twilight. He says, nearly all the cottages are built with two doors opposite each other, the more sheltered of which lies open all day to give light to the interior. And the shadow of the doorpost moving across the kitchen floor indicates the hour. As soon, however, as the wind changes to the south, The other door is opened and the people are at a loss. (laughs) When the wind is front the north, the old woman manages my meals with fair regularity, but on the other days, she often makes my tea at three o'clock instead of six. (laughs) A century later, the Guardian journalist, Carol Kudroja, would spend a week working in an Amazon warehouse. The breaks are precisely 15 minutes and they start wherever in the... Uh, warehouse you are. Remember, Amazon warehouses are measured in football fields, kind of, that's the size of it. Like there's, you know, the biggest one is in England and it's the size of 15 uh, football fields. And so if your break starts with only 15 minutes, she says, it takes me six minutes to walk to the airport star scanners where I spend a minute being frisked, I queue a minute for the lose, get a banana out of my locker, sit down for 30 seconds and then I get up and walk the six minutes back to my station. Now, I think these two quotes from a century apart convey radically different understandings of time. Just a little insight into the way that, like gender and like everything in this society, the way that we understand time, leisure and the working day is socially constructed. I think making people obey the clock in the way that Carol described requires all kinds of structures. That time discipline starts early. Kids are punished for being late to school or late handing in homework. And the ideology about laziness, about wasting time, all serves to teach people to obey the clock. I think that tells us something about capitalism and that it creates and demands particular things about our time. The fact that now mass workplaces require their workers all to arrive at set times, be there at 9am or whatever it is, uh, means that every worker needs to be able to tell time, to have a watch or a phone, to predict how long it will take them to travel to work and so on. And within the workplace... The increasing sophistication of technology demands extremely sophisticated methods uh, of measuring time. So to measure a computer task, an internal computer task, you can use nanoseconds. Before technology was so advanced, you would not have either the need or the capacity to have such a detailed measure of time. And if the main reason to measure time is about harvesting a crop before it spoils, you hardly need a minute or a second hand. The nanosecond is actually slow garbage compared to what technology can do now. A nanosecond is a billionth of a second, which sounds good, but it's not. There's a picosecond, which is a trillionth, 
of a oh. second, and there's an, an attosecond, which is a quintillionth of a second. So something else you've learned today is that quintillionth is not a word that's made up to describe something really big. It's a measurement of time that you use in like photon and laser research kind of thing. But I want to talk about some of the changing understandings of time from free capitalist societies through the transition of the Industrial Revolution and to our modern day. To start with the history, I've got here maybe the, um, well, definitely the oldest recorded attempt to measure time passing, and it's a bone carving of the phases of the moon, probably, from the NASA Institute. Being found a lot of little of carvings kind of like this on portable pieces of bone and rock that people use for who knows what. It's not until much later, though, that sundials and water clocks began to appear. So it's around 1500 BC that sundials and water clocks appear around Babylonia and Egypt. And water clocks are sort of like this, or sort of like hourglasses with um, markings on the side to measure the dripping as the passage of hours as the water level reaches it. The columns were different for each of the 12 months to allow for longer hours in summer and shorter in winter because generally people thought or considered sunrise and sunset of the markers of the 12-hour day, that's still true in Ethiopia, which means that in summer, hours were just longer, and in winter, hours were just shorter. Uh, unlike today, clearly, where the 24-hour day is static across the year. So you can see, I think, in this technology, both a real degree of sophistication and a capacity to kind of make the technology bend uh, to fit the demands of that society. There was heaps of different devices kind of appeared around the world, and they all say something about the culture that they came from. In China, there was invented the incense cloths, and so the way that it works is you lay incense kind of around those patterns, and there'd be different scents. And so as, the, as they burned through, the changing scents of the incense would tell you about time passing on, which is like the dreamiest love that I've ever heard of. <laughs> Yeah, so that's in the first century. Those incense clocks were invented and then they spread. Uh, around the 2nd and 3rd century BC, the Romans had a 10-month calendar, which started in March, where September is the 7th month and December the 10th, which makes sense for their etymology. The Great French Re Revolution set up its own Republican calendar as part of their attempt to build a new society. 12 months, but each were divided into three 10-day weeks. Um, and this attempt to kind of have a highly, highly rational society divided the day into 10 hours, an hour into 100 minutes, and a minute into 100 seconds. Uh, that calendar itself was overthrown in turn by Napoleon. So it's sort of, you can see how the way of organising time and organising the calendar in any society kind of reflects the people in power and the shifting class forces at any time. In 1940, President Franco moved time ahead one hour in Spain to keep up with his political allies in Nazi Germany and Mussolini's Italy. Uh, there's been countless less impactful kind of grand attempts to restructure time. Um, like, one of the, anyway, I think this is so funny. The, between like 1930 and 1960, people know Kodak, like the camera company, the film company, they had their own internal calendar that was different to the normal calendar. And all of the workers had to carry a little Kodak calendar because the guy that founded Kodak, George Eastman, he... Um, it used to be called Eastman Kodak. He was an active participant in the movement for calendar reform. And what they wanted was... <laughs> it's real. And what they wanted was um, a very predictable clock. So it used to, he was like, you know, every year we have to print all these new calendars. I have to figure out people's holidays and things. 
let's just have a very set, very predictable uh, 28-day month and we'll only ever have to print one batch of calendars and then you can just use it every year and only the year will change. So they had 13 months, 28 days through a month um, and, so, and they just chucked an extra month in between June and July called Seoul. And there was big calendars up that had the Kodak calendar in every room at all the Kodak offices. Um, and you can still find people's little handheld calendars. It didn't really take, obviously, but it gave it a red-hot go and used to leaflet all the workers about why it was important. Um, and it looked sort of... That's kind of what a month would look like. And every month looks like that. And these were... Um, it was basically like an accountant's dream. And you think it was just like... So every year... so. Tuesday the 3rd would always be Tuesday the 3rd in every month. So it's the most predictable, um, imaginable kind of calendar. And these were guys that really liked predictability. The, it was eventually dropped under the necessity of dealing with other companies in the real world as we <laughs> will reimpose itself. Uh, but next year, in 2017, the Sunday falls on January the 1st. So if you're ever going to get your chance... To turn over to the new calendar, now's the time to get organised, <laughs> G'day, I'm Warwick Thornton, the writer-director of Samson and Delilah, and you're listening to 3CR. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're listening to a chat that uh, Jess Linehan had at the Marxist conference over the Easter weekend. Let's hear more about um, uh, time. Uh, the Gregorian, the rest of the Western calendar, is the one that we are most familiar with. 12 months, 30 days, has September, etc. And within that, the three-month cycle of seasons means that no matter how kind of unseasonably warm it is, uh, cool or wet or dry it is, when whatever day it is ticks over, we're officially in a new season. And that's quite a particular way of organising the seasonal calendar. Those months might feel totally different around the world. Uh, July might mean summer here or winter there. But once that clock hits midnight, we've hit a new season. Historically, societies have used much more used a localised calendar based on the actual changes to the climate. A CSIRO study of six Aboriginal language groups established 13 seasons, all defined by a particular change in the natural world, like a flowering plant or an animal's migration. I'm sure other people know more about this, and there's been a lot of study done. But one of the things that I found... Uh, is from an area around Kakadu, and then one of the seasons that begins when the barramundi move from the waterholes downstream to the estuaries to breed. Peasant and early agricultural societies also defy clock time. The anthropologist Pierre Bourdieu wrote of peasants in Algeria that an attitude of nonchalant indifference to the passage of time, which no one dreams of mastering, using up or saving... Haste is seen as a lack of decorum, that's my kind of country, (laughs) and combined with diabolical ambition, which I agree with as well. The clock is sometimes known as the devil's meal, and there are no precise meal times. The notion of an exact appointment is unknown. They agree only to meet at the next market, or whatever. Uh, But I don't want to give the impression that pre-capitalist societies had no measure of time. If you're a fishing community, you have to have a rigorous knowledge of the times of the tides, Agricultural communities um, have to know the seasons and when's a good time to, um, you know, let the animals out to graze or milk the cows or whatever it is. Uh, Evans Pritchard, who's a British anthropologist, called this the cattle clock, the round of pastoral tasks. A measurement of time itself in these societies was based on familiar tasks. In the 17th century, Chileans 
are supposed to have used the time of an Ava Maria, said out loud, to cook eggs. <laughs> uh, monks in Burma have been known to get up when there is light to see the veins in the back of your hand. Uh, Madagascans are supposed to have measured things in the time it takes to fry a locust or a rice cooking. Uh, and there's all kinds of examples from early English literature where they would describe like, you know, how long it took you to travel from A to B based on some kind of natural task like that. That kind of experience of time has been referred to as qualitative or as task-oriented time. And it's really only possible uh, in a society where production is not based on industry. Okay, so sundials and water clocks uh, could be extremely sophisticated but they had very major logistical problems. A water clock could not be used on a boat, ironically enough, um, because the movement of the waves would mess with their measurements. Um, and they needed, over time, and as technology develops, uh, it becomes necessary to move to a more precise mechanical clock. And this is a refurbished clock, but it gives you a sense of the, how elaborate some of them were. It's so beautiful. Um, that mechanisation happened, that mechanisation of clocks, that development, happened around the world in different ways at different times. And that history is contested, and it's a contest that matters because England has always taken the credit for everything that's ever happened. And so, but they say, with a grain of salt, that the first mechanical clock was in England in the late 13th century. And it had no clock face, only a sound, and they were mostly kind of in churches run by monks who were some of the first people who have ever been able to. Um, tell time uh, and it was much more kind of used for prayer originally uh, the dial of the face would come later and those early mechanical clocks are supposed to have told time accurately to within sort of 15 or 20 minutes a day which is pretty accurate all things considered um, given it was the 13th century and all that um, the, and in any case, it's sort of like if you only had one major clock for the whole community, then it becomes the correct time to any real, um, you know, in any real sense. In the 14th century, the dial of the clock was included, um, but generally clocks had only one hand, which is, I couldn't find a good picture of it, but it's usually, it was like a carved hand, was just like the thing that they made it out of. I do not know why, but that was the um, convention. And the whole face of the clock would spin. Uh, to meet this one hand. The clockwise spiral across the face of the clock comes from the shadow moving across the face of a sundial. So you can see there's a natural element coming through even in mechanical clocks uh, in the turning of the earth. Okay, but if anyone's picturing it and has figured out that it should be reversed, it's because it comes from the northern hemisphere. Um, and that's, there's a political contest to even that as well. Uh, Evo Morales in Bolivia commissioned a whole set of counterclockwise clocks uh, to show his allegiance to the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> yeah, people everywhere were grateful. The, um, in the 15th and 16th centuries, the first portable clocks appeared in Germany. I've got one that is still in a museum. Um, they were... So they're just like... They're, it's a real luxury thing now. There's only a handful of people who can tell time at all... Um, and you, like you look at it, like that was there was not all these peasants carrying around these kind of things. Um, I don't know if you can see it, but there's uh, both a clock hand and a oh you can see the clock hand. There's also a sundial inside it, so you can sort of open it up and it becomes a sundial. Um, and you can see the kind of engravings on it. Um, 
the, that, so that's one of the oldest portable clocks, and it's sort of about like yay big. Um, but the whole thing was, it was actually just a kind of, it was just decadence. Like it was just, you could be like, oh, let me just check my pocket clock. Because they were so technologically unsound that like just walking was enough to break them kind of thing. <laughs> so that's why they had like sundials on the other side of it because sundials were much more accurate. And so the first proper um, portable clocks were actually just like tiny little mini sundials that you could like put in your pocket or wear on a little chain around your neck and then just check it when you went outside. Um, the I had a joke that I could never quite work in properly that's about how I expect that to come back around as a Fitzroy trend. So maybe in the discussion someone can come up with something good. Uh, and that one's from 1560 or so. Uh, around 1600, Galileo studied the movement of the pendulum uh, and he didn't invent the pendulum clock, but he left the notes uh, which would eventually lead to it. There was a Dutch inventor named Huygens uh, who did develop the pendulum clock, and that's when clocks became accurate in a, um, or became much more accurate. And so clock time now is spreading around the world, but still was not part of the way people generally organise their life in a real sense. So you might, as a worker, move to the bell. Uh, but it's still sort of in the kind of in the way that you organise your whole life. It's clearly not in the way that we would do it now. Where it's like the first thing when you wake up in the morning, you should check your watch or whatever. Um, there's debates. So if people are interested about the extent to which that clock time was kind of a real part of individual people's lives, um, Vanessa Ogle has just published a book with Harvard University Press that goes through um, that particular debate. Uh, okay, so in the mid-1600s, so we've got the first successful bourgeois revolution in Britain, a failed one already attempted in the Netherlands. Capitalism is sort of emerging from the crisis-ridden feudal system, and that social change interacted with the technological breakthroughs. In the late 1700s, um, the technological capacity that was being unleashed in Britain met with the demands of the factories for regulated workdays. And that's kind of what those two things made Britain the global leader in time measurement. Uh, through the 1800s, Britain's, uh, Britain debated what time should be used in each town. So most people uh, measured time uh, by as the sun moved overhead over their town. We call it when the sun is crossing the meridian of a particular town, and a meridian is kind of like, like the opposite of the equator, so it's the north to south. And you've got a picture like kind of 360 lines just going north to south around the globe. And before the 19th century... Every locality around the world that measured clock time uh, measured it according to their own precise meridian because you measure 12 noon as it crosses over. Which meant that Bristol was like 11 minutes behind London. Just to go across England, you'd have to kind of change times like 11 times or something. And it was very imprecise. If you wanted to figure out a train timetable or something, it would take like an immense kind of complicated set of calculations just to get a few towns across. But when the fastest form of travel is the horse and cart, it's not really a problem. Um, but as trade and travel expanded, that sort of standardisation had to occur. And so the solution was more or less to arbitrarily declare one line to be the prime meridian and mark every time zone as rippling out from there. And so that's Greenwich Mean Time, and Greenwich was declared uh, the prime meridian. It's not anymore. It's technology is better now, as they figured out a new one. But that is the basis of Greenwich Mean Time, uh, which is, by about a million miles, the most ambitious attempt ever to draw whole nations, to draw the world, 
into one standardised, organised framework of time. And so it's the railway industry in England that was the forerunner uh, of that standardisation of time. And then you can say the train will arrive at 4 o'clock Greenwich time or whatever, and stations can just do their own thing. Uh, But basically every single other town that was not on the Greenwich line massively resented that as an imposition, Um, and there was a movement against what they called railway aggression. Uh, (laughs) Like, someone suggested that it's possibly, like, the first ever anti-globalisation or one of the first ever anti-capitalist protests, which is legitimate. But it is a little example of the politically contested nature of time measurement. Hi, this is Liz Stringer, and you're listening to the Mighty 3CR on 855am and digital radio, 3cr.org.au. And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're uh, indulging ourselves in a conversation that uh, Jess Linehan had with uh, an audience, at the, a very noisy audience, I'll have to say, at the um, uh, Marxist conference over the Easter weekend. And uh, we'll just have the last little bit of uh, her uh, discussion about time. I find it fascinating. In 1857, a guy named Samuel Kidd published a book on the English factory movement. Kidd had been a chartist, a socialist and a Glasgow shoemaker. And in this book, he quoted a worker who described how the bosses at the time tried to control access to time itself. He wrote, We worked as long as we could see in summertime and I could not say at what hour it was that we stopped. There was nobody but the master and the master's son who had a watch. We did not know the time. There was one man among us who had a watch. It was taken from him and given into the master's custody because he had told the men the time of day. There's another text called Chapters in the Life of a Dundee Factory Boy, an autobiography. And the author wrote, There were no regular hours. Masters and managers did with us as they liked. The clocks at the factories were often put forward in the morning and back at night And instead of being instruments for the measurement of time, they were used as cloaks for cheatery and oppression. And this was known amongst all the hands, but all were afraid to speak. And a workman then was afraid to carry a watch, as it was no uncommon event to dismiss anyone who presumed to know too much about the science of horology, of time measurement. So you get a sense that as the struggle, the kind of early worker struggles for the, you know, like a regulated workday, that there's a real battle for control that's happening E.P. Thompson's article, Time, Work Discipline and Industrial Capitalism, describes how even though watches and clocks were out of reach financially for most workers, uh, workers would splash out on one when they had the opportunity. Uh, He cites an article from the Monthly Magazine in 1799 describing what happened. Um, And this is when there's an annual payment for military service, the militia bounty, and... The magazine is like, it's funny because they're just like, they're all in a tears um, about what the workers have spent their money on. So, and I quote, The town Winchester has been a scene of riot, of dissipation and absurd extravagance. It is supposed that nine-tenths of the bounties paid to these men, at least £20,000 in 1799, were all spent on the spot among the public houses, milliners and watchmakers. And so that's kind of the extravagance of it. It's like beer, watches and a nice hat. Um, In Sussex and in other areas of England, there was what's called clock and watch clubs, where workers could pay five shillings a week, and then they would all go in on a watch together, and then you could take turns, you get a week of the watch. It's the original timeshare. Okay, so the measurement and imposition of time is central to capitalism for a number of reasons. Importantly for us, though, 
is the fact that labour power is a commodity. It's a commodity that is owned by the worker that is sold to a boss. To buy or sell a commodity, you need to measure it, weigh it, package it. Labour power is measured in time, bought and sold in hours and weeks. And the economic exploitative relations at the heart of production define the society that we live in. So Marx begins capital with the discussion of the commodity because it's the production of commodities for the market that defines capitalism. And there's two major ways that, work, that a manager can try to get the most out of that commodity. So you can make the worker work intensely hard during the workday, or the second is to extend the period that they work in. And that can happen dramatically or in tiny ways. So people can think about in, early, uh, in the early Industrial Revolution, just, you know, there's both, both are aspects. But workers, um, you know, 16-hour days, 20-hour days, working on two-year claps. Oh, but Marx also referred to um, the nibbling and cribbling, in the technical terms, uh, of the bosses snatching minutes here and there. And you still, people would still feel that. Anyone who works would feel that. Like if you work in a call centre and you've got to come in early to turn the phones on, um, or you leave five minutes late just so you can send a couple of emails just before you head off or whatever. All of that is part of that contest. I think those can help us to understand why time measurement is both so important to capitalism and, on the other hand, why it's always been such a struggle. It's always been in the interest of capital to supervise, measure and direct every little action. So you think of Taylorism and the attempt to break down the tasks of the worker into tiny, low-skilled pieces of a jigsaw that can be performed faster and faster. So Taylor of Taylorism fame was one of the pioneers of time-motion studies he would measure how long it would take someone's eyes to travel from this part of the room to that part of the room if their eyes were already open, like left hand raised from a raised position or something. And they kind of all make up tiny little jigsaw pieces of, um, of the task. Uh, and so he would measure them with a stopwatch and get the workers to just do the same kind of tiny little task over and over and over again until they were extremely fast at that one... Uh, mind-numbing, soul-destroying, uh, tiny little movement. And he delivered pages and pages and pages of detailed studies, uh, all aimed at developing the most minute level of control over the worker. Taylor wrote his, a thesis uh, suggesting the positive impact that could have of making workers more ground-down and docile. Taylor wrote 100 years ago, but I think this control remains today. Like, you think about, if you work in a call centre... Yeah, the workers always have to be available to take calls. If you have to put your phone on hold, that break is timed, recorded in a manager's spreadsheet, and the manager at the end of every week will get a spreadsheet of who's had the longest breaks and what the nature of them was. You can't just press hold, you press toilet break or coffee break or other, and every time one of those buttons is pressed, it'll send a little notification to your manager. Uh, even if you press other, you have to do a form at the end of the day or something similar to record just what you spent those three seconds doing, because God forbid you had a minute to yourself uh, in that day. I mentioned Amazon at the start. Every year Amazon sells billions of products, and each one of those is found in the warehouse, wrapped by a worker. Those Amazon workers carry handsets that tell them what to collect and to put on the trolley, and it allows a set number of seconds to find each product, and it counts down the time that you're allotted time. Uh, if you go over time or if you make a mistake, it starts to beep on the second and it beeps faster if you still can't find the product. So you think about that kind of impact that that has on workers who just do that for hours and hours and hours over the day. Um, and that's common to... Um, yeah, there's countless examples of that. But the other side of it is workers resisting it as well. So 
So from the very beginning of capitalism, workers have struggled for a normal working day. Any workplace agreement will include uh, regulation on breaks, on maximum and minimum hours. Um, the struggle for a limited working day is one of the fundamental struggles uh, of workers, historically, and it continues now. I think even, you'd have to say, sneaking a few extra minutes on your lunch break or whatever is still part of this contest. But the grander examples is obviously the struggle for the eight-hour day. And that was Jess Lenahan from uh, the Marxist Conference over the Easter weekend. It was great. I just found talking about time and uh, how people have uh, conceptualised time as such an important uh, uh, aspect of our lives that uh, is worth uh, looking at and uh, really interesting stories. The whole idea that you'd have a house with a front door and a back door and the sun going across, coming through the front door, giving you a line so that you can demarcate the uh, time of day. Uh, but you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and in the studio we've got Spike and Kelly. They're from the Homeless Persons Union of Victoria. Hello, you two. Oh, oh, oh. I was completely excluding you. <laughs> Good morning, Annie. Morning, Annie. Yeah, I know. It's a bit early, isn't it? Thank you so much for coming. No, You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thanks for yeah. having us. Yeah. Now, you guys have been doing an action down at Bendigo Street in Richmond. Can you tell Collingwood. Our... Collingwood. Oh, they call it Collingwood, yeah. do they? Oh, it is no, Collingwood. No, it is Collingwood. Yeah. Oh, right. We, we were confused a bit as well. There's oh, right. There's two Bendigo Streets. Oh. <laughs> well, there you go. Tell us, tell us more about it. Well, okay. Um... Last Wednesday morning, uh, a few people, with, because of the union, we found out through certain contacts that um, we believe it was three or four um, uh, women were turfed out of a house that had been empty for two years on Bendigo Street. And they were turfed out by um, someone from Vic Roads and two police officers. Um, what was concerning about that, not only that they were turfed out and it was an empty, in a vacant house that had been vacant for two years. And, turf- and those houses are part of the buy-off for... The, that's right, the compulsory acquired properties for the East-West Link that have been lying there. Yeah. To, and on the on the sort of uh, lowdowns, like a hush-hush, because you don't want to... That would take the... Uh, put pressure on downward pressure on housing prices if everyone knew how many ha- empty houses there was like eighty thousand empty houses in Greater Melbourne. Yeah, Some right. of them are private, but still they're empty houses. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, these young these people were thrown out, yeah. and so what's their duty of ca- can can you just throw out people onto the street in the middle of the night if they're assaulted, um, or something happens to them? When we went to the um, the council, we asked, "What is your duty of care to these people?" You know, you, can you just turf someone out into the street? If something happens to them, who's responsible? So we thought... Um, that came to the attention of the union. Yeah, that, that came, that's right. came to our attention and we thought, well, we started meeting with a, a couple other people um, and we decided that we were going to do something about it because the union was always concerned that this social community, corporate housing sort of deal was incredibly opaque Um no one's accountable, and there's no clarity. I mean, yeah, it's it's opaque and sort of. And we're seeing more and more people on the street. That's right. Yeah, you just need to walk down Swanson Street, you know, and and um, it's it's just unacceptable. It, it, people, when there's eight empty houses in one street, or seven or eight, it's just it's a um, an indi- an illustration of what's happening throughout the state. 
because of the lobbying that real estate agents and land barons do. Uh, they put pressure on the state government and the state government folds and sort of says, right, you know, we need the support of you guys for whatever reason. And they they, they support capital rather than their constituency, yeah. yeah, the people that they're responsible to, even in their warped sort of uh, Western capitalist pluralist sort of, you know, deal, their agenda. Um, even in their sort of way of looking at the world, they, they're supposed to be accountable to their constituents. But they're, they're showing absolute contempt for them. Now, why are there so many people on the streets? Why do you think that there are? Because, I mean, there used to be a whole process of public housing. That's right. But quite clearly, public housing's being reduced. We're now getting what's called social housing. That's right. But that means that you have to have a certain steady income to be able to actually live there. And also there's this selling off of public housing to uh, people, so uh, but they're not being replaced. That's right. It, apparently in the next budget, um, next state budget, uh, 2,500 public housing properties will be turned over to community well, housing. Well, the Community Housing Federation That's has right. asked for, for them to be transferred. Tell us about that. What's that all mean for people on the ground? That means they want to privatise public housing. Basically, and your rents are not capped at 25% of your income and there's not necessarily any security of tenure because the management of the properties could change at any time. So what's in it for us, the people? It, there's nothing in it for us because we obviously... When you say that the, the pressure of the real estate agents, so what they're doing is the, their interests are to, to increase the price of properties and right. to reduce the amount of properties that there is so that there will be competition. Because is that what you're saying? If, yeah, what that, and that's exactly what I'm saying. And to a, an extent, when we were at Markham Avenue, for example, in Ashburton, that's right. That they were socially cleansed. Event. Yeah, that, that they just, they bulldozed sixty perfectly good units that had money assigned to do the maintenance on them, but the, the money was never spent. And so, of course, the da- you know the rising damp got worse, and and and. They basically, through their inaction, they illustrated that they weren't interested in doing anything about public housing. They, it's not a priority. Before the last, tell me about election, social cleansing. Well, look, it's like you get everyone that may have a, may have had a bit of a drinking problem or a mental health issue or um, a gambling problem, perhaps, or may not be as functional. Or be uh, victims of d- domestic death violence. violence. Yeah, or um, some sort of abuse at home. People have lost their jobs. That's right. That's right. Or unemployment poverty. Poverty. Yeah, that's right. Um, these people, um, they won't be the people that get into social housing. No, well, they can't because that's they right. don't have the right level. You've got to have at least $25,000 a year. So then uh, you can imagine the towers, for example, will be, will be chockers of people who are struggling. Then they will be able to point to them as it, some type of. Uh, well, they're under stress. Yeah, and and I'm sure there'll be people coming out and saying, "Look, this is a ghetto, mm. so we need to we need to bulldoze it and replace it with so you know community housing or social housing." So it's a cre- there's you can see the machinations like the gears sort of turning that way. So what you're really saying, I guess, is that there's a movement away from social responsibility. That's right. And deciding that only some people are allowed to be on the boat and the others can that's just That's right. Drown. The lifeboat isn't big enough for all yeah, of us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and I'll just and quickly add that the Melbourne 2050 plan, the plan is, you know, that's the long-term plan for the city of Melbourne um, or Greater Melbourne. The plan is to build these um, high-rise um, 
uh, estates right on the outskirts of Melbourne, you know, in the in the far east. Craig because Burn. it's worked worked in all the other countries of the world. Well, <laughs> like Paris. Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. It, it's incredible it's incredibly um How depressing. Outrageous. Yeah, it is. It's it's um it's a, it's a it's a it is it is social cleansing. It's a type of discrimination and uh contempt for people that you know, we 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 really talk a good game in Australia about human rights and social justice, but when it when you if you examine what's actually happening, it's it's absolute rubbish. Mm, that's right. No one's come down to speak to us, apart from bureaucrats that are trying to present us with what they call as evidence of what you know, like. Leases. It's all under control. Yeah, and it's not. It's they, not under control, dif- no. Different, different, different... Um, if we, um, we wouldn't be seeing these people on the street that's sleeping right. in everywhere, everywhere. They're everywhere. People are everywhere now. And and people are tired of it. People are... Be- we've got... We've spoken to people, people, you know, um, there's, a, there's, there's this sort of myth out there that the people who are sleeping rough don't understand what's going on. Oh, you're right. You know, and... You just have to stand at one of the tram stop and hear people who are homeless having a chat about it. That's right. Which uh, I have. I yeah. mean, I know they know what's going on. They they do, and they know what's happening. What at are this they mentally deficient or something? That, well, that's the way they're being painted, and um, it's like a lot of people are being forced—not forced, but encouraged—to go into um, mental health sort of psych drug sort of type thing, and then at services, and then they push back onto the street. Now, I understand that services do provide some assistance, but you know. Seeing individuals as a bunch of, um, you know, they pathologise them out of existence, basically, as a, a list of diagnosis, complex needs, you know. So the human, you know, the, the person disappears. And yeah, so but, just... but also uh, when you say that, uh, I mean, I don't know what the percentage of people who are homeless are who have got mental health issues. Um, it's probably fairly high, I don't know. But um, people who are poverty, people who have uh, had to run away from That's abusive right. uh, arrangements, young kids who are turfed out because the family actually doesn't have the economics to be able to support another person, that sort of stuff. Uh, there's lots of reasons for That's why right. a person could be homeless. Uh, and you'll find that people say, oh, I didn't never expected it to be me. Uh, older women who have no uh, financial support. I mean, it will be easy. And the point is that you can't blame the other services because actually they're being cut to the bone. That's right. And I was reading the big article about in the Australian, uh, in the age, there was a big uh, article about you guys. uh, And uh, this sort of bitter kind of uh, response from one of the bureaucrats from the person who was yeah. being interviewed them they said well we've we've provided them with uh, a list of uh, services that they can uh, go to and i can fantastic <laughs> well the, yeah that what does lie, that mean that was lies anyway yeah. was those, those yeah. four young women were not provided with any nothing. alternative accommodation well there you go no, all options nothing yeah, so everything's under control in the newspaper, but in the real world, it's not under control. No, no it, it's it's so far out of control. As you said, you just go walking down Swanson Street or Elizabeth Street on any day of the week, and you will see the ravages of what 
of neoliberalism. Through, yes, uh, the neglect, mismanagement, and, and inaction of a state government that isn't interested in its constituents at all, and they need they need to pull their you know they need to pull their fingers out and come down and talk to people that are have been sleeping rough, and and for them to understand what people are going through. Yeah, it's it's not good enough for them to sit up in their offices and 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 and, and sort of play possum basically, and then and and send out bureaucrats who are like are playing like this you know shell game about yeah hang on it's under here it's under here actually it was Vic Roads now it's DHS and now it's uh, Magpie Nest turns up and it's What's just that? like well the the relationship between the Salvation Army and the, and, Mac, and the Collingwood Football Club before we even decided on any action we we contacted the Collingwood Football Club and the, David Emerson who's in control of Stadia and their Magpie Nest pre- yeah. And the magpie nest thing, and he was out. We are we point blank asked him, mate, are are those houses on Bendigo Street filled? On Bendigo Street filled, um, because is it a P or is it a PR stunt, a hoax? Are you trying to you know um, uh, raise the hopes of homeless people in some really sort of mean or insensitive way. way? Yeah, and he came back with, "How dare you! You guys are offensive and rude, and you're impugning our character." We're working at fingers to the bone to make sure people are being uh, housed. And we don't have anything to do with the empty properties on That's Bendigo right. Street. That's right. If the house is empty on Bendigo Street, it has nothing to do with us. Two days later, someone from the Magpie Nest turns up. And says, we manage these properties. You guys need to get out. You're preventing a homeless family from moving oh, in. It's just, it, it, it's, look, this, this experience has really shown me that... Um, you know, diff, it, I don't know if – do they lie to their employees, whether it be the police force or the bureaucracy? Because when they come down, they look shocked. They look shocked that – they're either shocked that we understand what's going on. Which you're not de- mentally deficient. That's right. <laughs> or um, they they present us with um, uh, uh, a position where they, they look – Point blank in the eye, and and you find out two hours later that they they've been lying out of their back teeth. Now I don't know if they've been lying to. I really don't know, but you can't help but be bloody cynical. Yeah, yeah. yeah but also it's this. Uh, it's like uh, getting one group of people to lord it over someone else. Uh, it's like uh, it's a power game. Yeah. It, it's just a power game. We can push you around because. Well, it's real black shirt stuff, if you ask me. It is. Me. That's exactly what it is, Annie. You've hit the nail right on the head. They've got no respect for the people that are out on the street. They, as I said, they're showing absolute contempt. Tim. And, and uh, it, it's just not bloody good enough. Well, you guys have got demands. De- definitely. Yeah, do you Definitely. want to tell us about your yeah, demands? Yeah, um, we, we want the immediate release of all information relating to the current ownership of all properties acquired for the East-West Link with full transparency about all acquired land and uh, no more of this playing games. And we want some integrity, we want some um, accountability and we want some transparency, yeah? yeah. We want them to come to, to come to the party and say, right, we we are the state government, whoever, you know, or the Department of Housing and this is what's happening. You know, yeah, that, right. it's taxpayer money. Yeah. You know, it's come out of consolidated revenue and they've gifted them to an, a faith-based organisation and their other sort of mates. So as far as, as, far as, as the union's concerned, you know, the community should be involved in this decision-making process or at least 
have uh, access to the information. And accountability. That's right, yeah. Show us how it's working. That's right. And, and show the, us how you're actually getting people off the street. Yeah. And, and the second demand is the seven unused houses on, I think most of them are on the east side, but I could be wrong. Um, the seven unused houses on, on Bendigo Street to be made into genuine public housing, not social, community or corporate housing, and be allocated to some of the 35,000 people that have been on the waiting list for up to 10, 15. Some, I, I heard some uh, um, stat, yes, uh, a couple of days ago where there, some people have been waiting 20 years. Excuse me. Yeah, that we, um, we will leave. We'd be happy to leave when we see those keys handed over, Yeah. Um, our third demand is all occupied properties for the east. Uh, I'm not sorry. All unoccupied properties acquired for the east west link that are still in the government's possession be added to the public housing register. Um, that Minister Martin Foley come down to Bendigo Street and speak to the people that that were rough sleepers and now have got a roof over their head. Mm. Yeah, at Bendigo. At Street. Bendigo Street, we've been able to house people, you know, with no money. We, we, there was it was there was dust there a week ago. We there's now a living, breathing, vibrant community, and if that is illegitimate or illegal, I'm I'm happy to go to court for every every day of the week for the rest of the year, you know. And the last demand is that the Andrews government make it clear on what steps they're going to take to house the twenty five thousand, which is probably off by that's probably a third. Um, what they're going to do uh, about the 25,000 people that are homeless in light of the 80,000 empty houses in Greater Melbourne. Yeah? Yeah. So right. they're the five demands that we have. And uh, there's a petition, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, yes, and you can go to the petition at hp, www.hpuv.org.au or follow the union on Facebook, Homeless Persons Union Victoria. Okay, that... Uh Petition again, www.hpuv.org. That's Homeless Persons Union Victoria. Look, um, just sorry, Annie. It's just that we what we're campaigning for is for them to to for we actually we try we're gonna we're having to force them through direct action um, to make to get an under we want them to understand and make a, um, some sort of commitment to universal public housing. That's right. We pay for it I through agree. our taxes. We should have health care. We should have public housing. And we should have a free education. Yeah, as far and, we, as we, and we should stop being giving public assets over to private, corporate, profit-making interests. That's right. And then turning around and telling people that they're not good enough that's to right. lift their heads up into the air. Beautiful. And, and they're, they're taking away people's dignity, self-worth. Yeah. Um, and... And people begin to uh, internalise that sort That's of dialogue right. and they begin to believe it. And unfortunately, look, I've been in that situation. You start to self-medicate. That's right. Because it's cold, you're hungry, you're frightened. What do you do? And we're going into winter. That's, <laughs> That's I mean, how dare they? You're on Solidarity Breakfast and thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Thank you, Annie. Cheers. We really appreciate your support. So if anyone, if look, anyone out there that wants to come down and support what, what um, so we're doing. So it's Bendigo Street, Bendigo Collingwood. Street, Collingwood, number two. Please come down. We're having, um, we're having a movie night next Monday. I think so. Yeah, at 7 o'clock. We've, we've held two community meetings. We've got the locals supporting us, especially the locals in the street. They're involved in, with the East-West Link. Um, so please come down, show your support. 
People have been incredible. They've donated food. They've come down and made meals. They've do- people have done whatever they could. This has happened without a dollar. When we, when we went to the council and they said, look, we can't do everything, well, we've, we've done a whole lot. Mm. We've absolutely nothing. But they nothing. can do nothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, but it's frustrating when you can see with what when people come together and people of goodwill and good conscience come together and actually and it's look let's, this is going to sound a bit cheesy but it's our common humanity yeah doesn't mean black green red or brindle doesn't matter doesn't you know it's people's sexuality that's got nothing to do with it we all deserve a roof over our head and the state government needs to make a commitment to it because if they're not committed the electorate needs to know and turf these people out and put someone in place or I mean, this isn't part of the demands, but as far, you know, from HPU's position, let's let's have community-controlled spaces. Now, I mean, that's like again, that's not part of the entire thing. Well, that's the next step. Well, it's another battle, isn't it? Uh, but we're, we're showing that, that it's possible. Yeah, that's right. So you know, um, it, it's it's you have to bite your tongue because there's a bigger picture and we have to be incredibly clear, focused and calm about all this. I'm not one of those sort of people, unfortunately. But I'll tell you what, Spike and Kelly, it's great that you're actually making a stand and that you've actually uh, pinpointed practical uh, ways for people to actually make a difference on this particular issue. This is the biggest issue uh, at the moment uh, for Victoria and Australia, I'd say. Oh, look, I hope it grows. I hope people interstate throughout Victoria um, just understand. They understand. They see it in their neighbourhoods. There's no doubt that they understand. I think people struggle with, to find the words and the concepts and sometimes to join the dots and then to think, well, what do we do about I mean, because voting is... <laughs> well, that's just a, a different version. Yeah. That's, that's something else. That's but, r- voting something else. Um but getting this back on the agenda, that public housing, there has to be genuine public right. housing, is an example of a, a huge uh, ideological shift away from Neo-liberalism. the neoliberalism, basically. Yeah. Anyway, we've got to get on. We're going to have to hear what uh, Kevin Healy's got to say about this. <laughs> this is the week that was. Now, I get calls. People call. They say, you didn't put Kevin on Sorry. at... Uh, at eight, no, no. What you've got to say is hugely important. Thanks, Thanks very much for coming. Thank in, you, both. Annie. You're, you've always been a great support, and I really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank yeah. you, Annie. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team Lister, when this disgraceful, illegal, lawless tax or non-tax leak of a few thousand filthy, bloated, rich individuals and corporates who by law are also individuals, shows just how evil the evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers are. This revelation, this illegal leak, and those who leak this attack on these people's right to privacy should be ashamed of themselves. This illegal leak shows just how evil, evil unions are. The Minister for Coshing the Workers, Michaela Kosh the Workers, spoke for the government. Uh, I'm a bit confused, Michaela. Explain that a bit. 
it's obvious that they, these poor, filthy, bloated, rich victims of this illegal leak are so crippled by the selfish wages and conditions demanded by evil unions and workers, take, 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 they are forced to take steps to minimise, legally minimise, their taxes when all of them, and they have told me this, all of them would love nothing more than to pay the full amount of unminimised tax they are liable for. What? All over the world? Of course all over the world. Wherever there are evil unions and lazy avaricious workers, there is gross exploitation of the caring business class, forcing employers to take, reluctantly take, this action, enabling them to continue doing what's good for all of us. Uh, does the government, Michaela, plan a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal King mission into these practices, install a tough cop on the beat to crush caring tax avoidance employers? These revelations prove once and for all why we must crush the evil trade union movement. Now, sorry, I'll rephrase that. Ensure the evil trade union movement operates within the law. Within the laws, we legislate to crush, uh, sorry, again, to restore balance in the Costa workers' relationship. This illegal leak proves once and for all the Socialist Party must support our legislation to restore balance into the industrial equation, allowing caring employers right around the world to pay the taxes they would love to pay if it wasn't for evil union corruption and thuggery. If the Socialist Party continues to oppose this legislation under the orders of the evil union bosses who control it, it will prove once and for all... It is soft on corruption and thuggery. Must say, listener, what a surprise. Who would have thought the filthy, bloated rich worldwide would be evading or, sorry, minimising taxes and hiding their filthy, bloated wealth? But in their defence, obviously Mikhail is right, as incorrect, reluctantly forced to take this action by the selfishness of evil unions and workers, and how could the media exploit, take advantage of illegality, as the poor Panamanian victim Mossack Fonseca exploded angrily, and this is true, how can we satirise this? The Mossack Fonseca partner attacked those using the leaked files for using the leaked files and not concentrating on prosecuting whoever leaked them because leaking them was the real crime against the law. And Mossack Fonseca is a law firm, so obviously it has great respect for the law. Well, the criminally leaked files frank that. In its very limited coverage of the story, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, 13 pars on a left hand bury the news page. Well, the right hand news pages were reserved for real crime, dole bludgers bludging, preferring to whoop it up on their excessive dole payments that accept good for all of us jobs, albeit low paid jobs, but it gets them into the workforce on the ladder to becoming big supremo of a bank, for instance welfare cheats, the real threat to the true blue Aussie economy. But around the 13 pars, pictures of the Russian and Chinese big supremos, obviously rorting their own tax systems. Well, no, neither has, as yet anyway, been exposed as named in the files. Vladimir's daughter's godfather got a mention, as did some Chinese official, but if Lord Rupert was happy to declare guilt by association, how come he didn't have a big picky of the Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country big supremo, David Commies Wrong? 
whose dad, a big stockbroker, set up a shell company somewhere out there in tax haven land and paid no tax to the British government for decades right up until he died. Poor David's now defending inheriting the no tax for decades little windfall. Or even, back to Lord Rupert, just perhaps a couple of the myriad of true blue Aussie filthy bloated rich whom the files suggest are rorting the system. There is a certain guilt by association with Panama, though, and the original Mossack of Mossack Fonseca fled Germany after WW2 to escape prosecution for his role in the SS. For which the words the world's filthy bloated rich have so much to thank him. And as the banks here sweat under an avalanche of litigation alleging all sorts of rorts, as if it's been one after the other in recent years, and in every case the big supremos in the boardrooms had no idea what was going on, that their underlings down the line were ripping off and rorting at a great rate. And every time another rip off and rort is exposed, they tell us just how much they regret what happened and sincere apologies to the ripped off and rorted, how they'll review their procedures and make sure it doesn't happen again. Until it happens again. And now, talk about injustice gone mad, the overzealous, over-officious regulator wants a law to make the big supremos and boardrooms responsible for the behaviour of their underlings. Something about corporate culture, but then some of us thought ripping off was corporate culture, so they're just doing their job. Anyway, they're a bit upset about all this, poor dears, and the former Witch Bank, which used to be our bank, Big Supremo, and more recently author of that financial services report for the caring business class government, David Moore and Maury, sprang to the Big Supremos and hard-working directors' defence. Charging Big Supremos and hard-working directors for their organisations rorting and ripping off would erode the public's trust in the banks, he asserted. <laughs> now, I've got no idea how he worked that out either, listener, but that's what he said. It would prevent the banks doing what they normally do, he added. Uh, which is, David? Uh, well, ripping off and rorting. And put that way, that might explain what he meant. Poor David almost had a heart attack when an interviewer asked him whether he thought there should be an Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal King commission into the banks. In case we're wondering, David assured us there was no need. There was no comparison between law-abiding, rorting and ripping off and the evil, evil trade unions and lazy, avaricious workers. Haven't caught up with today's big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull's thought bubble, conceding for the sake of the word thought, but one of last week's, the greatest advance in true blue Aussie history, according to Malcolm, a once-in-a-generation opportunity to fix up our tax system. Don't think he meant fix in the sense of the illegal leaks, but given, given it must have been a once-in-a-generation, because Malcolm said so, meaning a generation now spans exactly one and a half days. That's two and a half generations a week, give or take. Well, it did outlast most of his thought bubbles, but despite the rebuff, Malcolm still knows it's good for all of us that the Canberra team will cease funding public schools, cease wasting on the riffraff the taxes the riffraff pay, pouring the taxes the filthy bloated rich don't pay to the struggling private colleges of the filthy bloated rich.
And for goodness sake, what use is a caring business class government if it doesn't do its bit to help the selfless caring business class toss a few favours in its direction? After all, we all know that's good for all of us, whereas if a Socialist Party government handed more money to public education or, heaven forbid, supported evil unions against some inadvertent exploitation, that would be class welfare bias, bad for all of us. But thankfully, the Socialist Party knows that, so there's no risk of such partisanship. It too knows the caring business class represents the common good. Hence, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition, telling us how many trillions of our taxes he would hand to a steel corporate so it can continue to practice in the dog-eat-dog, laissez-faire world of market forces on the great level playing field of world's best practice. The Socialist Party recognises the market is king and we, we will provide this company with a few trillion of workers' taxes to support that. After coming secondary in a primary, US of the UN of the US of the world would be big supremo Donald Trump or the poor accused the bloke or, or over there, the guy who beat him of only beating him to stop him, Donald, becoming big supremo, tantamount to cheating an unfair play. And with that capacity for logic and analysis, let's hope Donald makes it. The free world needs that sort of common sense. The other guy, Ted Crush the Poor, feigned shock at Donald's most reasonable declaration that any woman having an abortion deserved to be punished. What a stupid thing to say! Okay, you might think it, but what a stupid thing to say! Just wait till you're elected and then do it! Because we all know abortion is a serious sin against the dear baby Jesus, whom I love. So finally, perhaps Donald could consult the US arms great ally and co-lover of liberty, freedom and democracy, Saudi Arabia, about public beheadings or stonings of such lascivious sinners. Because we all know that for those who believe religiously in the right to life, the right to life ceases at birth. Good morning. Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. You are indeed, and it's Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, our last segment for the show today is uh, about Pine Gap. You might have forgotten about Pine Gap, but Pine Gap hasn't forgotten about you. Peace activist Jacob Gretsch has uh, gave a speech at uh, the Marxist conference. He's explaining what's going on at Pine Gap and explains also why it's... Uh, there's a call by peace activists to do a convergence, effectively, on Pine Gap between the 26th of September and the 20th of October to uh, call for the closing of Pine Gap after its 50th year. This is its 50th year anniversary. So uh, I'll let uh, the man speak for himself. Uh, this is uh, fantastic pieces of data. Jacob is, can always be uh, relied upon to give you... Uh, nuggets of true data. Well, it has three main functions at Pine Gap. When it was started, and what they said they were doing was basically verifying arms control treaties. 
And the argument was, even amongst many people on the left and in the peace movement, that if you're going to have things like um, strategic arms limitations treaties, assault and a whole lot of anti-ballistic missile treaties, you need to have some way of verifying them. Okay, and the Australian government, the American government were saying that was Pine Gap's primary function. Um, but its primary function is actually that it's ground control for the SIGIN satellites. Now there are 38 satellite dishes at Pine Gap, um, including the new Taurus satellite dish, which was installed a couple of years ago, and that can monitor up to 72 different satellites at the one time. You're familiar with the picture of the ray domes at Pine Gap? Okay, those ray domes are there so that um, spies can't see what direction the satellite dishes are pointing at because that will tell you which satellite they're using to communicate at any one time. Um, but these new this new Taurus dish is just out in the open because it can monitor 72 at the same time. So through that signals intelligence, what it does is it can monitor the, the satellites themselves have access to all kinds of information. They can pick up microwave transmission, um, their the upload link for a whole lot of spying networks, for example, out in the... you know where the Telstra building on Lonsdale Street is? Up, up in there, they monitor all the telecommunications going through that major Telstra hub. From there, through a number of links, it gets uploaded to satellites, which are then can be downloaded and analysed at Pine Gap. We don't know at the moment, but just to give you an idea of its analysis capabilities, and just a few years ago, I think five or six years ago, it was recognised as being the largest computer floor in the world. All right? That's not in the Southern Hemisphere or in Australia, let alone the Northern Territory. It was the largest computer floor in the world. That is how important it is. And it's also, while I'm on how important it is, it's also doubly important because I mentioned it needs download stations around the world. In America, there are half a dozen different stations that if one of them was taken out, capabilities could be transferred around various receiving and ground stations. In Western Europe, the same thing happens. If men with hills taken out, it could be picked up by bad appling in, in Germany or whatever. In Australia, you've got Pine Gap, and that's all you've got. It's also important because it covers the area uh, that is most strategic importance to the United States and Australia at the moment, and that is not just the Middle East, but also China, because I don't think this is an audience where I need to explain that some of the big wars that are happening in West Asia and the Middle East at the moment are at least in part about the encirclement of China. Okay? Now, Signals Intelligence Satellites provides all that information. The other one that provides similar information is the Foreign Communications Satellite, FornSat and ComSat. What those satellites do is they sit up there and act like vacuum cleaners and picking up transmissions meant for other satellites. So all the communications that happen around the world, and we are living in a communications economy, is sucked down by these satellites into Pine Gap and analysed. It takes all bank records. Now bank records are very important, okay, because millions and millions of dollars are won and lost in the space of split seconds. Something happens, seconds later, something else happens. All that information is analysed in the computer floor at Pine Gap. As well as, of course, communication satellite, which means all your mobile phone communications, and we're not just talking metadata, we're talking texts, we're talking emails, 
we're talking Facebook posts, we're talking all forms of electronic data. Everything is swept up by these um, Fornsat, Comstat satellites. In fact, the Five Eyes, which Australia is part of, have you heard of the Five Eyes? Australia, United States, United Kingdom, Canada and New Zealand. It's an intelligence sharing agreement amongst the what I call the white English-speaking boys club that was set up after the Second World War. And the Five Eyes have a policy that they say um, sniff it all, collect it all, download it all, store it all and use it all. No, there is no such thing as unimportant intelligence. So that's what the Fornsat concept does. And then it also acts as a relay station for a range of early warning systems including Star Wars. Early warning for ballistic missile launches. Um, so, and it's part of the Star Wars thing where um, during the 80s the Reagan administration came up with this idea of intercepting ballistic missiles heading for the United States. And while we don't hear about it anymore, that is still alive and well and um, implemented all over, all over the world. In recent years, we've found out that not only does it provide information down, which is um, very important, um, people also upload. Okay, so they're not uploading that kind of nefarious information that we're aware of yet, but they're uploading information to their weapon systems. They're providing real-time, analysed information to the troops on the ground, in the air and on the sea, all around the Middle East. Okay, they're providing that to the operators who operate drones. They're intercepting communication satellites, they're providing signals intelligence. This goes to the drone operators who in real time can target a drone to aim at these things. That's what PineGap does. Who is PineGap? That's another important thing. I've mentioned it was set up um, as a joint Australian-American defence station. It's actually 1,100 people working at Pine Gap, of which about 800 are foreign nationals working for the US military in Alice Springs. Um, 1,100 people. Um, there are 2,000 people in Alice Springs holding US citizenship, 6% of the total population. So I say that to say Pine Gap has a huge influence on the economy of Alice Springs. Okay, it's absolutely huge. The first time I ever came across a garage sale was in when I was living in Alice Springs in the early 80s. And they celebrate 4th of July, Thanksgiving is a thing. It's, it is a very culturally American town. And they don't work for the US government directly, but one of the major arm companies that undertake work at Pine Gap. Some of the arm companies involved are ones you've heard of before. Um, they are one, two, three, uh, let's have a look. Lockheed is the biggest arms company in the world, bar none. That's who's selling us the F-35s at the moment. And Boeing, of course, is the second biggest arms company. And the fourth, third biggest arms company is British Aerospace. They're not involved because it's not a British base. Then you have Raytheon. Then you have Northrop Grumman. General Dynamics doesn't come into about seventh or eighth these days. They're having a bit of a having a bit of a slack period. But it's these same companies that are analysing the data and operating the satellites that provide targeting information and provide battlefield intelligence 
to the Australian and American and British and French troops on the ground in all the wars that are happening around the Middle East. It's these same companies that are tasked with providing communications intelligence that are intercepting Chinese, that are intercepting Russian, that are intercepting Brazilian, that are intercepting every other nation's um, commercial communication satellites. The war is not just a war between, you know, on people of the South. You know, there are, you know, I've heard it said before that there are three armies in the world at the moment, and they're called the US dollar, the euro, and the yuan. All right? This is what these companies are doing. They're taking information and they're feeding it through the military-industrial complex and creating a situation where the arms industry is the second largest industry in the world at the moment. Legal arms industry. Legal arms industry, that is. If you include the black market in arms, they reckon it's the largest um, sector of the world economy outside of straight financial transactions. So Raytheon, you know about Raytheon, you know, when they needed to build the Manhattan Project, for example, the bloke who started Raytheon, Vandermeer Bush, was brought in to oversee it. Northrop Grumman, they make all the satellites. General Dynamics, they make nuclear weapons. Boeing, they make everything. So we have a situation where military companies, the largest in the world, are tasked with providing the architecture and infrastructure to gather information which is used to justify expenditure on their products and services. And nobody sees a problem with this. Okay, they're saying there's a threat in the Middle East. And then they say, therefore, you need to buy more of our products. This is capitalism, I guess. All right, how is Pine Gap used? These are just a couple of case studies I've got here. Um, Australian bloke Chris Harvard from Townsville, together with a Kiwi mate, Daryl, were in Yemen when they were killed by a drone attack in 2013. The Human Rights Legal Centre are trying to pressure the Australian government to provide information on what, how the drones were used. Okay, we, uh, we still don't know. They refuse to answer questions on operational matters. Uh, remember the gunship that spent 15 minutes bombing the Medicine Sans Frontier Hospital in northern Afghanistan? This is the other side of the equation because Pine Gap has the information to know where the terrorists are, knew it was a hospital, they didn't provide that information. The gunship saying, the, the commanders who called the AC-130 in, the AC-130 is an incredible ship, or it's just, it's, it's a huge, it was a huge transport ship, like the Starlifter, and all its cannons, it's like an old pirate ship, all its cannons are on one side, on the port side, and it just flies around in a circle, just dumping, dumping, dumping. Bombs, cluster bombs, machine gun fire, small arms fire, cannons. just goes round and round the circle and started just dumping shit on wherever it wants to dump it. And they received no information from Pine Gap until it was all over. So it's not just, like in anything else, it's not just, I guess, the commission of what Pine Gap does, it's when it decides to be silent and not provide information and let atrocities like this happen. Alright, in 2008, the US and Australia during the Bali Climate Conference was found that they were using their networks to, to get people's phone numbers, to tap their phones, get their email addresses, all that, 
And while they're supposed to be talking about, say, the planet, because we're burning ourselves, what they were doing was collecting information. Now, that information, how that relates to Pine Gap, is it came from a leaked Pine Gap report. From now, now and then, we can't say too much, but we do have people who have worked in Pine Gap and are working in Pine Gap who occasionally can't take it anymore and come out and give us information about what's happening there. Okay, so even without its satellite technology, this is where information that's um, gathered through human, human, human intelligence is then taken to be analysed. And that's probably because when it's gathered in Bali, it's uploaded to a satellite and downloaded through Pine Gap. The dismissal is a case study. On the 10th of November 1975, Whitlam was shown a telex from Theodore Shackley, who was the head of the CIA, which said he was a security risk in his own country. He said that the next he said that on the 11th of November, if he wasn't given the correct, you know, the full information of what happened, what was happening at Pine Gap, he was going to expose the CIA's operations in Australia on the 11th of November. And of course we know what happened on the 11th of November, 1975. Now, some people would say it's a conspiracy theory to link the dismissal of Gough Whitlam to Pine Gap. There, some would point out that there's a whole lot of other reasons he was dismissed, and I agree with that. But it was, at the very least, we'd have to accept it's a significant contributing factor. And um, Christopher Boyce, who was jailed for, what, close to 20 years for leaking information about the dismissal, claimed that... His bosses, and he was a CIA analyst, much like Edward Snowden now, um, claimed that his bosses referred to our man Kerr in Canberra, um, who was getting rid of Gough Whitlam. So he came out and broke the news because he was outraged at the way the CIA interfered by overthrowing the government of a friendly nation. From when Pine Gap was started, when it was first started being built in 1969, the Australian Peace Movement, uh, sorry, 1971, I think the first one, have gone out to Pine Gap to protest the existence of Pine Gap. This is not just happening at Pine Gap, it's happened at Narunga before it's closed down. Protests happened at Menworth Hill, at Fort Meade, at um, every communications base around the world. It's 50 years since we've been at, since we've had Pine Gap. So the peace movement together, the Independent Peaceful Australia Network, which is sort of an umbrella organisation that all different peace groups, most different peace groups belong to, have called for a 50th year anniversary special at Pine Gap. So the reason we're talking up Pine Gap at this conference and about the place is to try to get people to be involved in the protests come September. Now, that was uh, Jacob uh, Gretsch, a peace activist, talking about Pine Gap at the Marxist conference on that was held in Melbourne in Easter, uh, over the Easter weekend. Now, um, there's a couple, there were a couple of other pearls of wisdom, because that was only an excerpt from the speech, but there were a couple of other pearls of wisdom which you might be interested in. One was uh, the obvious point, which is that drones don't actually lock on to people, they lock on to mobile phones. You might like to know that. <laughs> and uh, two, uh, the uh, data, the that comes through Pine Gap is also shared in raw data form with Israel because of the uh, various uh, 
allegiances uh, that uh, apply between the Americans and Israel. So they receive all the uh, data that comes from Pine Gap in raw form, which is interesting in itself. Someone rang up to also tell us that uh, every 10 years, the lease for Pine Gap is actually re-signed, and that is a point of... uh, contention for demonstrators against Pine Gap. So every 10 years, that's one of the reasons for why the issue is enlivened by uh, various demonstrations around uh, the country. But if you want to become part of the convergence on Pine Gap between the 26th of September to the 20th of October, go to www closepinegap.org and uh, you will find more information about how you can get your ticket on the bus to this event, this very important event, www.closepinegap.org. That's the place to go. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers And let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Now, before we come to the end of the show, uh, which we're uh, quickly coming to, (laughs) uh, I'd like you to inform you of a TPP forum. Uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership is uh, coming into its own in the Parliament. Uh, It uh, has to be signed off in Parliament. Uh, And, uh, of course, there's lots of people who are pretty unhappy about the TPP. There's going to be a forum at the Melbourne Town Hall, the 21st of April, 7 o'clock. It's in the lower Melbourne Town Hall room. Uh, Speakers are going to be Jed Carney from the ACTU, uh, uh, academic from New Zealand. I haven't quite got the uh, name correct, I think, but anyway... uh, the uh, Dr Deborah Gleeson, Public Health Association of uh, Australia, is going to be speaking. Kelvin Thompson, who's the retiring ALP member for Wills, is also going to be talking. Uh, the uh, uh, they it's that's at the twenty first of April, Melbourne Town Hall, seven pm TPP uh, forum. On the program today, we've uh, been happy and lucky to uh, hear from Jess Linehan, who was speaking about time at the Marxist conference, which I found absolutely innovating, and that's why I shared it with you. The uh, have to thank Spike and Kelly from the Homeless Persons Union of Victoria for coming in and telling us about what's going on at Bendigo Street in Collingwood. Uh, if you want to. Uh, 
be part of the change towards a uh, public housing uh, statement from the state government, then go to the petition that they've got on www.hpuv.org. HPUV stands for Homeless Persons Union Victoria, if uh, you're having difficulty corralling your letters. Uh, And we finished off with uh, Pine Gap uh, and uh, the encouraging you to... uh, be part of the convergence between the 26th of September and 20th of October to close Pine Gap, www.closepinegap.org for your seat on the bus. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go out with After Dark Little Birdie. Is that enough for my baby You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.